0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Scott McCartney is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And by DoHop. DoHop is revolutionizing travel connectivity. Learn more at dohop.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info
1: at airlinesconfidential.com.
2: Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Beb Balanza and I want to wish everyone a happy 4th of July. It's good to take a moment to appreciate the freedoms we have and July 4th is a great reminder of how fortunate we all are. One of those freedoms is the freedom to travel but Scott McCartney Free flights certainly have been restricted this past week.
0: Happy 4th of July to you, Ben. And yes, the fireworks you see outside your window are really flares sent up by stranded travelers. Just as we were optimistic about a good start to the summer travel season, things fell apart the last week of June. It was, as it often is, a combination of storms, an airline and air traffic control ability or inability to deal with the disruption efficiently. We'll talk more about that, about why it was United Airlines' turn to be the laggard carrier apologizing to customers this time, and really drill into the air traffic control situation by looking at a very revealing DOT inspector general's report about controller staffing. Some of the numbers at key towers, tracons, and enroute centers will blow your mind, Ben, and make it very clear why we are having such a problem.
2: I agree, Scott. We're also going to speak with one of the most savvy behind-the-scenes forces in the airline industry, Joanne Young, a lawyer who has been involved for decades in policy issues both domestically and internationally. With so much focus on the possibility of new regulations and old issues resurfacing in Washington, we thought it would be interesting to talk to Joanne about how
0: policy really gets made. I'm really looking forward to hearing some of Joanne's stories and talk about her experiences with different administrations, different airlines, and different issues. And I know she'll have some thoughts on air traffic control, too, because that certainly is a huge issue in Washington and everywhere else. Ben, summer thunderstorms on the East Coast are always disruptive for airlines. There's so many planes and so little space to reroute in the air, or even space to park planes on the ground at key airports like New York's LaGuardia and Washington's Reagan National. It didn't help that a cable overheated at the FAA's Washington, D.C. area terminal control facility, TRACON, that's the facility that controls traffic, into and out of airports around the D.C. area. That caused a two-hour ground stop at a crucial travel time. There were so many ground stops all week, and more than 7,000 flights were canceled last week. Vacationers were left sleeping in airports. Baggage piled up across the country, and it seemed like the only things flying were accusations. And that was before the super busy holiday weekend. United clearly fared worse than competitors. Flight attendants said the airline's communications with them to reschedule and reroute melted down. We've seen that same issue before with Delta several years ago and with Southwest more recently last Christmas. United got back on track just ahead of the very busy 4th of July weekend and CEO Scott Kirby blamed FAA staffing shortages for the high number of cancellations. JetBlue, too, blamed the FAA. Department of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, in turn, denied that it was the FAA's fault, and he blamed airlines. So it goes these days. It's really unfortunate, I think that we have a whole lot more finger-pointing than we do problem-solving. What do you think, Ben? Who's the most to blame in this?
2: I agree. I think it's a 50-50 issue, Scott. The FAA is clearly understaffed. And unlike the airlines who have staffed up since last year, they haven't. They've asked the airlines to cut back schedules in busy airspace like in New York because they can't keep up. So what I would like to see the secretary say is, look, airlines and the FAA, we need to get everyone together to see what we can all do to stop these issues. The reality is I've been thinking, Scott, that with the airlines better staffed up, and with more focus on international flying, like we talked about last week, that it should be a very good summer operationally for the airlines. But the last couple weeks would suggest it may not be.
0: Yeah, I think the airlines have plenty of work to do still in terms of staffing and scheduling and internal systems that can help them recover quickly from disruptions. They need to get more dependable, and that may mean scheduling fewer flights so that they have adequate reserve crews and planes, or not booking flights as full so they have capacity to reaccommodate customers when there are cancellations. But let's really dig into the FAA numbers. The FAA has so much work to do, and we got a very specific rundown of that from the DOT's Office of Inspector General which issued a report recently on FAA controller staffing challenges. The report got some cursory media attention, but I went in and read it, read it all, and it is scathing. The report says the FAA has made only limited efforts to ensure adequate controller staffing at critical air traffic control facilities. Limited efforts. That's shocking, given that this problem has been known for years. But it gets worse. The FAA has yet to implement a standardized scheduling tool to optimize controller scheduling. That's yet another example of how the FAA has failed at even the most basic technology. And there's more. The certified professional controller workforce has declined 10% over the past decade declined. We knew retirements were coming and the FAA has failed to get the controllers needed. And the trainee situation is really troubling too. The FAA shut down training for two years because of COVID. That's what the report says. That seems a pretty extreme response and has set the agency back big time since it takes more than three years to train a controller. Right now, 26% of the controller workforce are trainees, one quarter of the workforce. The report says, quote, the FAA cannot ensure it will successfully train enough controllers in the short term, end quote. The current staffing numbers were the most shocking for me, Ben. At 20 of 26 critical facilities, that's three quarters of them, Staffing is below the agency's 85% threshold, and so nowhere near 100%. For example, the New York TRACON, which handles planes flying into and out of the New York area, has only 54% of the staff it needs. Not really something to chuckle about. 54% of the staff it needs. The Miami Tower, only 66%. Further, The FAA hasn't revised staffing levels needed at facilities in eight years, with one exception, the Jacksonville, Florida Center, which has had a significant controller shortage and been the focus of a lot of attention because it is the funnel into and out of Florida. A lot has changed in air traffic patterns and volumes over the past eight years, but controller staffing isn't adjusting to that. Managers at 16 of 17 facilities interviewed by the DOT investigators said that their facilities were not adequately staffed. Controllers are working mandatory overtime in six day weeks and that's still not enough. The report states the obvious. When there aren't enough controllers, air traffic gets reduced. That leads to delays and cancellations. Quote, FAA continues to face staffing challenges without a plan to address them, the report says. The New York TRACON, with only 54% of the staff it needs, is authorized to have 30 supervisors, but it has only eight. It's supposed to have 13 traffic management controllers. They plan the flow and make sure that no particular section of airspace gets overloaded with airplanes, more than a controller can handle. The New York TRACON has only three traffic management controllers, the report said, supposed to have eight. The New York Center, which handles traffic at higher altitudes in a much larger airspace area, is supposed to have 36 operational supervisors. It has 12. New York Center is supposed to have 22 traffic management controllers, but it has only 15. The Chicago TRACON, 14 supervisors needed, but only eight there. It has only half the number of traffic management controllers it needs. It goes on and on. The report makes two recommendations, complete a comprehensive review of the distribution of controllers and implement a new labor scheduling system. The FAA agreed with the recommendations and said it is on it, which is what the FAA has said in the past too. As you know, Ben, The FAA doesn't even have an administrator in charge. It's on its second acting chief in 15 months. We have a very serious problem here. Something needs to change.
2: And things only change, Scott, when people want it to change. I'll tell you what makes me most upset about this. Had 10 or 20 years ago... We outsourced air traffic control to a private company. And if they were performing like this, you know that the current DOT would be blaming them. Look at how understaffed these people are. It wasn't like this when the FAA ran it and they would push to be bringing it back under government control. We have an administrator right now who doesn't seem to even recognize that part of this problem is under his jurisdiction. And so I have very little hope that the issues addressed in this report, which you outlined, Scott, are going to get fixed anytime soon. The rub is going to be that airlines are going to be delayed or have to cut back schedules. That's going to raise fares ultimately and frustrate a lot of customers. And yet the airlines can't do it without valid air traffic control. Remember when we had David Grizzle on the show, he was the FAA air traffic control leader for a while, he knew even then that the FAA wasn't properly set up for the hiring and training they would need. This is a massive management problem.
0: Yeah, it really is. And, and, I totally agree. I wrote a lot about privatization of air traffic control. and Went to Canada and the U.K. and Australia and other places where it's worked really well, and and I think you're right. Uh, this is a this is a management issue, and we've seen uh, that private companies can be a lot more efficient and uh, and plan for the future, get the labor they need, train the labor properly, reward people with uh, great salaries and benefits um, to attract them into the business and uh, and just as importantly, deploy new technology um, much more successfully than the FAA has been able to do. So it yes, it's unfortunate we didn't privatize a while ago, but as you said, the public uh, management of this has to change because this problem is just getting worse and worse. <laughs>
2: It all comes to accountability. If you're not accountable for the change, what's the incentive to make the change, right? Yeah. Scott, I think the troubles we saw, a lot of it near me right here in Washington, D.C., underscores another big issue. Secretary Buttigieg raised the prospect of making airlines compensate passengers for delays and cancellations within their control but this mess showed us exactly the impossibility of that was this caused by weather or by problems within the airlines control yes both good luck figuring out which was which airlines will say it was weather and air traffic control in some cases Flights were no doubt delayed or canceled because of airline problems. United had a harder time recovering than other airlines, but it's impossible to assign blame properly. And frankly, the proposal to assign blame and pay compensation really escalated all this finger pointing, I think.
0: Yeah, I agree with that, Ben. Ben. I've long been a consumer rights champion, but I do think it's impossible to assign blame properly and try and compensate people. I think a better solution, and we've talked about this before would be to let passengers find another seat on another airline at no additional cost. That's the way it used to be when the industry was regulated. There were United customers this past week, for example, who waited three to four days to get from San Francisco and other cities to Washington, Newark, and other East Coast destinations. Even though it's the busy summer season, they probably could have gotten there sooner on other airlines that recovered quicker than United. And yes, it might cost United more to buy tickets for their passengers on other airlines, depending on other storms when United might pick up extra passengers from other airlines are having their own issues. The bottom line is that passengers wouldn't be held hostage. And if a poor performing airline ends up paying out too much for seats on competitors, it has a lot more financial incentive to fix its operational problems. That matters. A reliable operation is cheaper to run than an operation that's not dependable. But the financial incentives could be a lot higher if passengers were allowed to take their tickets elsewhere after a long delay or cancellation.
2: I completely agree with that, Scott. When I was at Spirit, no airline would even talk to us about reaccommodating our passengers when we had problems at any price. They just wouldn't talk to us. When we spoke to the DOT, we told them we thought they could help the country by essentially mandating that if there are empty seats on other airlines, they could be compelled to sell them to carriers like Spirit. But that was just an example of how the industry sub-optimizes. For every passenger stuck in San Francisco, like you said, there was probably some fraction of an empty seat leaving on every other airline that could have got them closer to their final destination. By creating the financial su- incentive, you talk about, it also adds to that accountability I mentioned. Again, if you're not held accountable for the mistake, there's no cost to making the mistake. And that's what we see at the FAA, and that's what we're seeing at some airlines, too, Scott.
0: Absolutely. Well said, Ben. Ben.
2: While Airlines Confidential wouldn't exist without the support of our sponsors, we want to thank our sponsor, Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com.
0: And we want to thank our sponsor, Duhop, which is revolutionizing travel connectivity. DoHop is a travel technology provider enabling airlines to expand their networks, offer more connectivity create additional partnerships, and focus on improving the customer experience with more offers, services, and travel options. Airlines benefit from generating additional revenue from lower costs and from maintaining full customer ownership. Plus, in the event of travel disruptions, Duhop works with airlines and offers assistance in helping passengers reach their final destination. Just what we were talking about, Ben. Visit DoHop.com, that's D-O-H-O-P.com.
2: Very excited to have with us today Joanne Young, a partner at Kirstein & Young in Washington, D.C. When I was CEO of Spirit, Joanne and her partner represented us with all the regulatory matters with the DOT and FAA, and some other things. Did a fabulous job for us. And Joanne's been in the industry a long time. She'll tell us all about it. Joanne, it's wonderful to have you here. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Ben. I'm very pleased to be with two giants in the industry. You certainly uh, are an industry game changer everyone admires as I have always admired Scott since his earliest days publishing the Wall Street Journal, publishing for the Wall Street Journal. Well, thanks. Well, why don't you start
2: by telling our listeners how your firm got started
1: representing airlines? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll go back to uh, after Georgetown Law and a judicial clerkship, I was recruited by the civil aeronautics board, the CAB, which was the DOT uh, at the time with oversight over the industry. This was about the time deregulation was starting to happen. Uh, So after getting bit by the industry bug, which I think we share, I decided that I was uh, better off moving to the private sector. I started publishing and speaking on opportunities for airlines and cities under the Deregulation Act. There was a lot of disruption at that time. Cities like Bakersfield and Shreveport were losing jet service. Smaller uh, cities were losing everything. And uh, at the same time, there were opportunities like financing aircraft under the FAA then Loan Guarantee Program. So I started to build a law and regulatory practice here in Washington. Most of my career was in what I call big law, the big international law firms with where there's hundreds of lawyers and offices in many cities. Indeed, I was the first and only woman partner in a wall street firm for many years. However, uh, legal conflicts started to restrict client growth. So after giving up an industry litigation, a country, when it came to a big antitrust case, a group of us set up uh, Kirstein and Young in 2006.
0: That's really interesting. Joanne, it's great to talk to you. I, I appreciate your comments. I've long been an admirer of your work. And in particular, you've been successful through multiple Washington administrations. How do you maintain good relations with the DOT, the FAA, and more when the players keep changing?
1: Well, that's a good question, uh, Scott. Uh, We are careful to cultivate good relations with key staff who tend to continue on as the administrations in Washington change. Also, while I've been active in the Republican Party and indeed was honored to be named the 2020 Lawyer of the Year by them, through leadership in other organizations, I'm able to uh, maintain good relationships at political levels of Democrat administrations. Uh, For example, I've been elected president of the International Aviation Club the International Aviation Women's Association, the Women's Bar, and the Washington Foreign Law Society. So this puts me in touch with a lot of the players in this city. Um, And as you know, access is important in Washington, D.C. It sure is. Tell
2: us, Joanne, of your proudest success and why this means so much to you.
1: Well, this, this is gonna take, take us back a little bit, uh, Ben Scott, but in the mid eighties, I was representing Miami International and Bangor International airports. And the Port Authority of New York and the federal government wanted to prematurely phase out the older jets, the 707s, the DC8s because of noise. Uh, but this was before hush kits for the engines were commercially available. So we f- first, I first turned the port authority around after making a presentation on Iceland Air, which of course then had our NATO base, and uh, and then I we got legislation to allow uh, these aircraft, many of which came in from Central and South America to Miami, and from Europe to Bangor, Maine, uh, got the legislation to continue uh, their flying to the United States. Um, we were about to sue the FAA, but the gracious then administrator Don Engen relented and made the relief we'd won nationwide. So that that is a big one, but I, I have to add, that working with you, Ben, as then CEO, I was really proud to help Spirit transition to being the nation's leading ultra low cost carrier while fending off various you know, consumer enforcement matters and improving Spirit's relationships with the federal government, just as you, Ben, transform the whole industry through unbundling which, of course, enabled millions more to fly. And, and I, just, I just close with saying that the, the successful Court of Appeals challenge uh, to the FAA cancellation of the Southwest slots at Newark Airport uh, was also a, a career high. Uh, it was a unanimous decision, and, and most people thought it would be impossible.
0: DC8s to Ben Baldanza to, to Southwest Slots at Newark, you, you certainly have been involved in, in all of it. Uh, the, the DOT has become active in the areas of consumer protection again. Um, we've seen this time and time again. Um, do your clients ask you to push back or are most willing to make a deal?
1: We always fight hard, Scott, to defend our clients. And sometimes we get uh, the DOT to agree to take no action, to level no penalty. In other cases, uh, after a lot of delay, uh, it is in the client's interest to reach a settlement. We, we work to you know, maintain good relationships with the DOT Enforcement attorneys, who we often see um, at industry events, but you're absolutely right. They have become much more aggressive with respect to consumer protection.
0: I, I'm I'm curious. Do you think this time there's there's a good chance something will come out of it?
1: When you say that, I I I I I'm thinking about uh, all the proposed rulemakings they've started. Uh, yeah. or or, uh, or threaten to start right up to making the EU uh, requirements on payment applicable to US carriers uh, for you know delays and uh, cancellations. right. And uh, you know there's there's also you know this proposal where carriers would need to disclose uh, ancillary fees, you know, for various things. At the first time, the consumer sees uh, anything in the initial search results. And uh, this would be a real concern because uh, it would lead to a lot of confusion, and it would just be almost hideous on phones to right at the outset see these Charges when most consumers uh, are interested in the unbundling and only paying for what they what they select hmm. So that's that's one of them. I could go on with a list of horrors, but uh, it's uh, <laughs> hmm. We're we're uh, You know, there there's there is a real emphasis on uh, consumer protection uh, Uh, expanding, uh, if not the to the EU level, the situations for which carriers need to provide refunds uh, to include things like downgrades uh, to provide non expiring vouchers to uh, uh, refunds instead of vouchers and uh, just, uh, you know, if they receive any kind of financial assistance as was the case during COVID to have very onerous responsibilities as well uh, to consumers. But again, I, I, I don't want to go off <laughs> on all the, the horribles in Washington. Well, Joanne,
2: let me take you back to a time when I was at Spirit. We asked you to help get the DOT to stop Southwest from advertising bags fly free. We felt that wasn't right, because bags don't really fly free. You just don't have to pay for them if you have a ticket on them. We sent some of our people into Texas, went up to Southwest employees at different airports, and asked them to carry our bags to different locations. And when they realized we weren't flying, they said, well, we can't send your bag for free. And so <laughs> what I want to ask is, why do you think our argument fell completely flat?
1: Well, I, I think that uh, ultimately... The DOT chose, and this is after uh, writing them and meeting with them with with all of our arguments, including what the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, does. But ultimately, they chose to ignore the economic point that you make that passengers on Southwest are still paying to transport bags. It's just the cost is included in, in their basic fare. So DOT took uh, the perhaps disingenuous view that Southwest was just countering the fact that other carriers were charging a separate bag fee. Also, frankly, some people in the government, to include the Congress, had and still have the mindset that the basic airfare should include a carry-on and two check bags as was common before deregulation, when only well-to-do people could afford to fly. They thus favored the Southwest approach and gave them the benefit of the doubt in letting the advertising continue. They also wrote that they they did not feel a reasonable consumer would think that without buying a ticket, the carrier would transport uh, their luggage for free. So they use the reasonable consumer standard, which only the government knows.
2: Well, you might think it's funny that I had an idea that I would take a package to FedEx and ask them if I could go with the package.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, stand on the scale and they just might do it, Ben. <laughs>
1: You better talk to Fred Smith about
0: that one. Yeah. <laughs> the reasonable consumer standard is interesting, especially when you're talking about disclosure of, of all the fees and what it might look like on your phone. Joanne, many DOT regulations are reactions to some event. think the, the JetBlue ramp delay issue, the terrible Colgan crash, et cetera. Should the agencies be more proactive than reactive?
1: Well, as you know, Scott, airlines are highly regulated, especially from a safety perspective, as well as from an economic uh, perspective. Indeed, uh, the size of the font on airline websites is regulated, if you can believe that. However, there really needs to be caution to not overregulate, which just leads to higher fares because the airlines have to pass along the cost and there's no real consumer benefit. Airlines already have every financial incentive to run at levels of perfection. And I emphasize that. The, The Colgan crash appeared to have been caused by a lack of proper training which ultimately did lead to new training rules. But this is different from the JetBlue ramp delay at at JFK, which was the result of a massive and unexpected snowstorm. So rolling out stringent rules as a result of an unusual event can burden the airlines and raise costs, and under normal circumstances does not really provide a substantial offsetting benefit to travelers. Of course, the area that we'd all like to see the, the uh, government be more proactive, including Congress, is to modernize our HEC. So, I'll just mention that as, as an area you do want <laughs> the regulations yeah. to step up.
2: Well, Joanne, you were at the CAB early in your career. Do you think deregulation was good for the industry? More than 50 years later, I know at least some people who still think it was a
1: mistake. Ben, I think deregulation has been a tremendous benefit uh, to the public. According to a recent Reason Foundation report, base fares on an inflation-adjusted basis are still 47% lower than in 1978. And all in fares are down 47% since 1990. The truth is airlines are much more efficient with many more choices for travelers. Today, close to 100% of passengers can complete their entire journey on a single airline. Without deregulation, uh, airlines, frankly, like Spirit, Allegiant, and JetBlue would not exist. More people can fly to more places at affordable prices. There are unfortunate cancellations and delays that frustrate travelers and airlines. Uh, much of this is the result of the infrastructure not keeping up with the demand for travel. Congress needs to appropriate more money and the FAA needs to modernize and allocate funds better. Much of the delays and cancellations, especially on the East Coast, which were initially blamed on the airlines, were later admitted by the Secretary of Transportation, Buttigieg, to have been due to the lack of air traffic controllers at key locations as well as poor routings established by the FAA. The, the, in fact, the DOT Inspector General published a report just last week stating that over 75% of ATC facilities are understaffed.
0: Certainly with you, Joanne, on the impact of deregulation. If you just look at the numbers, the millions, hundreds of millions of people traveling every year and how important that is not only in people's lives, but important to the economy. There's just no question that uh, the, the availability of air travel has made a huge difference uh, around the world and certainly in this country. I'm curious, um, you've been a past president of the International Aviation Women's Association and a, and a board member and as we look back on, on some of those early days and, and throughout your career, why do you think there aren't more women in aviation? Uh, and, and what can airline industry and, and others do to promote more, um, to more opportunities for women?
1: Well, I I appreciate your bringing that up uh, and also mentioning the International Aviation Women's Association, which is a real jewel of an organization. It's basically for women at management levels of all uh, facets of the industry. But back to your question, uh, I think when I first uh, got involved with the industry, Uh, a lot of the people came out of the military, certainly the pilots did, and uh, a lot of um, key uh, management and and workers had been uh, in the military. And of course the military was not open at that time to women. Uh, So it kind of got this this reputation as a man's, uh, a male industry. I I do think that over time, this is changing. There are a lot of women pilots now. There's uh, a a lot of young people are interested in high tech and um, we're trying to get the word out uh, through mentoring and other programs uh, that there's a lot of uh, very exciting opportunities for high tech in the industry. Uh, So I think it's, uh, it's really a matter of communicating what is here for women and the fact that they can uh, aspire to go up uh, the ranks. Iowa has an annual conference and younger women can attend uh, and they get to mix with very successful women. I mean, Jane Garvey was on the board when I was president and uh, Marion Blakey later, so these are the level of women that come to Iowa conferences and who younger women can view as role models.
2: Joanne, why do you think the current DOJ is so opposed to consolidation of airlines now or consolidations of anything, it seems, even when that same organization, admittedly in previous administrations, allowed deals to give just four airlines in the U.S. almost
1: 80% market share? Well, it, it, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a complex uh, question, but basically following the Gulf War, and post 9 11, the airlines were in very, very poor shape. And, uh, you know, I think perhaps the Justice Department working with the DOT, which they do, permitted too much consolidation. And I think they know that. And uh, this administration in particular has been very aggressive in, in interpreting and enforcing the antitrust laws. It, frankly, been in everything from video games to healthcare.
0: Joanne, this has been a fascinating discussion, and we really appreciate you joining us. Um, look forward to hearing more about Washington and uh, and the inner workings and um, and tugs of war that that go on. Also, wanted to take the opportunity to thank you. Uh, um, you've done a, so much that has affected travelers and. Uh, airline workers and and everybody else uh, involved in travel and yet most of it behind the scenes and so people don't know. Love having you on the show and uh, and glad we could discuss some of these uh, really big issues.
2: Thanks, Joanne. And I'll encourage all of our listeners, if you ever get the chance to hear Joanne speak at a conference or an event near you, by all means do so. She tells great stories, always has great insights, and is a wonderful person to get to know.
1: Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Ben. It's been a real pleasure to be with you. And we'll be right back with more
2: Airlines Confidential.
0: Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net
1: is now boarding.
0: Thanks again to Joanne for an insightful look at how the sausage gets made in Washington, D.C. Ben, in this week's mailbag, our regular listener Pete in Tucson weighed in regarding the lack of leadership at the FAA. Pete says, I think you should invite a high-level guest to address the lack of leadership at the FAA. There continues to be many problems within the aviation system that require strong leadership. It's been 15 months since Steve Dixon left the agency. I was very supportive of Pete Buttigieg being named as Secretary of Transportation, but he continues to be a big disappointment. From his lame response to the rail disaster in Ohio to the ongoing lack of leadership at the FAA at a time when effective leadership is needed.
2: Thanks for that comment, Pete. I agree with you. I have to say, I was a bit nervous when Pete Buttigieg was named to that post, not because he doesn't seem like a good guy, but he just didn't seem to have the gravitas needed for the kind of problems the DOT and the FAA have to solve and since he's been there, he's, it, it just seems he hasn't spent much time even thinking about the airline industry other than to throw barbs and place blame. So thanks for your comment, Pete. Scott, Joe from California, has our weekly aircraft question. Two questions, actually. First, Why did Continental and United cross fleet very fast after the merger was complete versus Americans' merger with U.S. Airways in 2013? They really haven't crossed fleet that much to this day besides seeing a couple 737s flying Charlotte to Raleigh. And second... Why did AA never fly the MD-80 series aircraft out of Miami during its service? Scott, I can offer some insight, but I'd like your thoughts first.
0: Well, I think, you know, these things are always so complex and uh, it may have to do with union contracts. It may have to do with maintenance bases. Uh, where certain aircraft need to be maintained by, uh, say, U.S. aircraft need to be maintained at U.S. Airways bases. Um, it may have to do with spare parts inventory and just uh, and and what pilots you have in what bases. Um, so my understanding is this can be really complex. Um, the MD eighty uh, question is is an interesting one, um, and I think that. Uh, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. As I recall, the the MD-80 was not a great aircraft over water, and a lot of flying out of Miami goes to Central and South America, uh, where you need planes with the range um, to get there. So that that may have been an issue for the MD-80. Certainly you had large bases in Chicago and Dallas, very familiar with that airplane and uh, how to fix it, how to fly it and all of that. And so um, Miami, I remember when, when American took on the 737 Max, I believe uh, started it in, in Miami. I think that airplane is better suited for uh, the kind of flying that gets done out of Miami. Tell me right or wrong, Ben.
2: I think you're right on all that. I was actually unaware that American never flew the MD-80 in Miami, but I can kind of see why. The MD-80 in its heyday was essentially the regional jet of American. I say that because there were no RJs yet in the 1980s and early 1990s. But Americans schedule those planes the way U.S. carriers schedule the 70 and 90C regional jets today. So it was much more a domestic short-haul plane. And since a lot of the stage lengths or flight distances out of Miami, are long, even to Boston and New York and Chicago. Mm -hmm. MD-80 just wasn't the best plane for that. In terms of why American and U.S. Airways haven't crossed much fleet, the only thing I can say is when the two airlines got put together, they were really two different networks, that got put together, and they probably just haven't taken a lot of time integrating them, flying much of U.S. Airways the way Airways flew it and American the way American flew it. If you compare that to Continental and United, essentially Continental bought two big hubs, Newark and Houston, into a complete united schedule. So those two hubs integrated into Chicago, Denver, Dulles, San Francisco, and so on. So it was probably easier to create the crosses. But I also would think it probably was just a focus. American United probably said Let's get this airline working is one right away. You may remember that when U.S. Airways merged with America West six years or so before U.S. Airways bought American, those two airlines didn't even merge their operating certificates for that whole time. They ran as completely separate operations operations. Until U- U.S. Airways bought American, so I really think it's network related and focus related.
0: Yeah, as I recall, uh, uh, America West and U.S. Airways never integrated their seniority lists. They they couldn't. They were they were fighting each other, and uh, and it wasn't until uh, the merger with American that they were able to to get an agreement with the uh, pilots union on how to integrate.
2: Yeah, that's right. Those two airlines operationally never merged. They called it all U.S. Airways. They sold it as one company on their website and things. All the tickets said U.S. Airways, but the pilots never got in and out of different airplanes they had separate dispatch centers. They were. It was like it was a holding company mm-hmm. that had America West in it and U.S. Airways in it.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, that's all for Airlines Confidential this week. Have a great week, everyone.
2: Thanks for listening. We'll have more next week on Airlines Confidential. And thanks again to Joanne Young for a great conversation.
1: This podcast is produced by Mass Media, info at massmedia.net.